Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Altaspeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Dave writes in our first email and says, Hi, Noah. I'm in charge of technology in a public library, and I like to use free and open source software wherever possible. The library has a small server, and it's used to run our Avaya IP-based office phone system and our Keyscan access control system for keyless entry. The server is about 10 years old, and the software has not been updated since it was originally installed by the company who maintains the system. Due to its age and the fact that the company does not seem too interested in keeping the system up to date, I'm looking to replace the server myself and updating the software preferably with something open source. Do you know of any good open source software to control keyless locks? We're currently using HID 1346 Proxy 3 key fobs and would like to continue using them if possible. Any help or advice would be most helpful. Thanks, Dave. So uh, I'll, I'll start with this. You didn't ask about phone systems, but I'll we'll, we'll start there. Uh, you have two options, Dave. Um, your first option is obviously you can go with something like FreePBX, um, which is an open source IP-based phone system. And over the years, there there was a time when Asterix, there was a time when Asterix started when you really had to get down and dirty on the command line to really get anything done with it. Um, and I remember going to presentations at at uh, at LinuxCon. I don't know. I, I suppose would have been late late 2000s. Uh, and th- that's when Asterix was really starting to take off and people were talking about all the cool things that you could do with it because it conformed um, to the SIP standard. And and so that was really exciting with IP voice technology. Nowadays, it's gotten so easy to deploy uh, an Asterix-based system. They, for a while, they had Asterix Now, which was just an ISO that you downloaded. I believe now that's just, I believe it's just called free, P- free PBX. And it has a web UI that you can manage in the whole nine yards. And it's one of the the most powerful universal open source software stacks out there, and it's great at managing phones. Now, in full disclosure, we've stopped using Asterix at AltaSpeed Technologies, partly because we've outsourced doing our phones to Vox Telesis, guys down in, in, in Fargo. And Mike does a great job, runs every runs his whole company on Linux and, you know, and uses open source where he can. But um, he said numerous times, we've tried every IP-based phone system out there and 3CX really stands ahead of the crowd. And so even though it's not open source, runs flawlessly on Debian, runs flawlessly on Linux. It's a web UI to manage it. And really, you're just tying hardware systems to it. So I, 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 don't get me wrong. I like open source. I always put that at the top of the list, and then I work my way back from there. At the same time, really what I'm interested in is data security. I'm interested in privacy. I'm interested in reliability. I'm interested in getting the job done. And if I can do that with open source, that's always my preference. And and if any if it's not open source, then it is a placeholder. And I'll be honest with that. Um, but if there's a tool that does the job better and doesn't prevent me from doing that job on Linux, at the end of the day, Steam 
doesn't have an open source license either, and it finds itself installed on my computer. So on to access control, and I'm, I'm glad you asked this question. I, I, there's not a whole lot of excuses I have to dig into access control on this show, but it's, it's something I'm interested in. So um, let's start here. There are a number of different standards that came out uh, when proximity cards first came out. And, and, I'll, and I'll start by also saying right off the bat, before anybody gets too far into thinking about this, um, most proximity card systems can be fairly easily defeated. So, and 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 now there's new technology to try to to combat that. So, so the when when proximity systems first came out, there was a uh, a very widely agreed upon standard. It's the 26 bit Wiegand standard, and that people throw that term around fairly loosely, and I think that can be frustrating sometimes. Um, because they, I'm getting messages here and people that should, um, I, I, I think it can be frustrating sometimes because you, you enter into this world trying to decipher where all of these things are and you, you can't figure it out. You can't decipher one thing from the next, different card standards, different, different readers, different companies, different manufacturers, different standards. And, um, the term Wigan gets thrown around a lot, sometimes inappropriately. Uh, and, and it's, and it can be used to define a couple of different things. It can be used to define the protocol in which we send information from the proximity proximity card reader back to the controller. It also can be used to define the way that we encode the data when we send it from the proximity card reader to the controller. And it also can define the wiring standard used when you're connecting a Wigan reader um, to an access control system. So there are really three parts of any access control system. Um, the access credentials, which can be fobs, can be key cards, um, can be a Bluetooth on your phone, can be the NFC tag inside of your YubiKey, uh, or it can be a pin, or it can be facial recognition, can be fingerprint. All of those things are considered credentials of some sort. The second part of that system is the reader, and this is the device that you'd actively present credentials to, or you would actively go up to and interact with. And the third part of the system is the actual control unit, which is doing the processing and validating a user is valid or invalid. So when Dave writes in and asks and says uh, they're currently using the HID 1346 key 3 and would like to continue to do so, what I take from that is you are using a 26-bit Wiegand standard uh, uh, proximity key, and that's what the HID 1346 prox key 3 is. Um, the good news about that particular key is it's universally read by every HID reader ever made. The other good thing is even many uh, companies – that are apart from HID because they want to participate in that 26-bit Wigan standard, um, they will read the 1346 Prox Key 3. And so companies like Isonus, companies like Carry Systems, all of these companies make Wigan readers that you could purchase and uh, you could read those uh, those Prox keys with it. So uh, to answer your question, what would you go with? Um, so there's a there, it, it kind of the, the answer to that question somewhat depends on how many doors you have to do. It also somewhat depends on how frequently you change the programming of these doors. And then it also has to do with the kind of overall building construction. We're doing an access control job right now um, that is in a very old building um, that has concrete everywhere, uh, like casted con- cast pour concrete everywhere. And, uh, and so getting through that or getting wires in and out and stuff is, is a challenge. And so the, depending on how that's laid out would kind of depend on what system you go with. So here are some that you could look at. 
I would start by looking at the Honeywell Access System, the NetAccess 123. Here's what I like about the NetAccess 123. So first of all, with most Honeywell Access Control Systems, you can use whatever reader you want to include HID Wigan readers. And so if you purchased a uh, an HID Wigan reader that supports the Proxy Key 3 standard, then you're going to be fine, which, again, to the best of my understanding, that would be all HID readers ever. Um, and so you would you would purchase that NetAccess 123 uh, controller board, you'd purchase a reader. I think the kit actually comes with readers. And my guess is that those Honeywell readers would read the Proxy Key 3 as well, but I'd have to double check on that. It is it is 125 kilohertz uh, fob. I haven't looked to see uh, exactly which standard it is, is though. Um, so assuming that those readers work or you purchase separate ones, you'd be able to interface those to the NetAccess 123. Now, wh- why I say I would start there is this. Every other access control system that I'm aware of operates in one of two ways. Either you have a piece of Windows software that controls it or you tie it to the cloud. And those are the, those are the, those are the, the two most prolific ways that I see access control being used today. If it's a large enterprise installation, like where you're working with Gentech equipment and, and those kinds of things, then you're usually integrating multiple things, like you're tying it to Active Directory and you're tying it to um, badge printing and creation. And, and, and so there's this entire process of onboarding or outboarding uh, an employee when they come in or out. And access control is just a small portion of that. And companies that are working at that kind of size, we have 500 offices or whatever, and there's, you know, 700 doors inside of all 500 offices, and we need people to have, you know, precise access to, to, to different doors. In that kind of an organization, the net access would not work here, right? Because you need to be able to enroll a user one place and, and then have it access thousands of doors. And, and so if, if I don't imagine your public library is in that position, but if you were, that's when you'd want to start looking at other options. But the net access is great when you have just a few doors um, that you want to control. The thing that I like about it, it has a built-in web UI, and so you have the opportunity to manage the entire access control system on the device itself, which kind of makes it operating system agnostic. In fact, if anything, I would excuse me. If anything, I would be strongly inclined to suspect that the net access runs Linux underneath the hood. Now, if you say, if you come back and you say, okay, I looked at the NetAccess and it has a 31 door capability, or actually I think it's 31 controllers, four doors. So whatever that is, math, 120 some doors. Nope. Need to go up from that. Then your next step is to go with something like a, a, a Honeywell system, uh, that uses WinPack, uh, which to, 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 to manage the, the, the Honeywell controllers. And then essentially you do it one of two ways. You either create an RS, uh, an, an RS-232 serial loop. Um, and each device is connected uh, to each other, or you can use uh, TCP IP, give each device an IP address, set one as a master controller, the rest of them the slave, and use WinPack to manage them. Third option you have is to go with something like carry systems, which is what I have at my house and what we run at our office. And um, I, I don't know that I don't know that I have any great selling points for for carry system over Honeywell, other than they were around and made a better product up right up front. And had it available, and so we've been using them for longer. Um, but support is really good. They don't. A lot of companies penalize if you're self-installing or if you don't have professional training on how to do that. Carry Systems doesn't do that. Um, you just reach out to their, go to their site, and say I want to sign up as, and they have online training and and uh, some other resources available to you. Uh, but they'll work with you, uh, to, and they'll work with you to manage that system in house if that's what you want to do for your library. So I would check out both of those things. Like I say, check out the NetAccess One Two Three system. I've not installed one myself. I've not played with it, um, but it's high on my list of I'm looking for excuses uh, to, to do something like that because the idea of it all being managed right inside of a device 
is 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 um is really nice and i i did uh, i i've been aware of the honey uh, the honeywell uh, access 123 something that had come across my radar just when you sent the email in and i just kind of looked is anybody else out there doing that that embeds the the configuration right on the device and i found one additional manufacturer that's doing that and it is hid proper they have uh, I think it's called the Vertex, and they have a door controller that also has a web UI. But the reason I like the Honeywell NetX is better than the Vertex, uh, the the HAD Vertex is the HAD Vertex, uh, or the HAD the one with the the built-in web UI, whatever model that is, uh, only supports one or two doors. The NetAccess you can buy it in up to a four-door controller, and then you can build a NetAccess one two three network. Uh, with up to 31 control, 31 four door controllers. So you can get up to a hundred and some doors. Um, and that would cover, I would think, the vast majority of people trying to get into access control. 855-450. No, it's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Tony, Tony joins us from Toronto. Hey, Tony, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Uh, hey, you bet. Um, I had a Two questions, if you don't mind. The first one is uh, about uh, what, what do you use for a, uh, a virtual machine hypervisor? I've seen some stuff online with uh, a lot of people back their VMs, like let's say a KVM uh, hypervisor with uh, ZFS and then, uh, you know, do like use Sanoid to do replication and stuff. I'm talking more like a small business kind of thing. Um, have you done that before, or do you do you have a particular solution that you use? We do. We uh, are you talking just for virtualization? Just, yeah, just for VMs. Yeah, for for virtualization. When when we when we go into a client to set up virtualization these days, Cockpit has gotten so good at managing everything on the server. I mean, you, when 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 they released Cockpit or when they started pushing it in RHEL, which I I think was twenty nineteen somewhere in there. Uh, the big push, the big marketing thing was manage a server from your cell phone. And boy, if that hasn't become the truth. Uh, and so when you install a version of Red Hat or CentOS or Alma Linux and you install the Libvirt package, you have a virtualization host. And if you have Cockpit and the ability to manage virtual machines from Cockpit, when you log into the machine's IP address colon 9090, it it, it, there's a web UI and there's a virtual machines tab and you click on it and you can spin them up and do almost all of the things that you could, you previously could do with vert manager. And I almost want to say that there's nothing left. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I have to resort, resort to, to vert manager these days for all of the bridging, all of the networking stuff can all be done inside of cockpit now. Uh, and, and it's just a really nice UI and it's brain dead simple to set up. It's it's like you know it's it's essentially three packages. It's it's the virtual machines package for cockpit. It's cockpit and it's libvirt. Okay, so so I uh, does that use KVM uh, yes. in the background or correct? Yes, it is a KVM virtualizer. Okay, okay, awesome. Okay, and and would I be able to? I, like I don't see any reason why I couldn't back that with something like ZFS, right, for snapshot replication. Uh, yeah, you can absolutely do that. So there's a couple different ways you, so, um, the, the one way that you could do it is you could take snapshots of the VM and you could send the snapshots over the wire. Second way you could do it is you could set up a, like if you have a file server on the same site that you have your virtualization host, you could set the, you could set the FreeNAS machine up to be the storage device for the hypervisor, at least the disk pool. 
uh, the hypervisor. And so it's storing all of those images and just, you know, you'd have like a NFS share with a 10 gig NIC or something like that. And, uh, and, and, and then the, the, all of the virtual machine disk images would be on ZFS. And then in FreeNAS, you would take the snapshots there and deal with backups and all of that. And then if, you know, if you wanted to have a second backup server, you'd put the second backup server likely off site and then you'd use ZF send with a VPN tunnel to send your, to send your ZFS snapshots over the wire. Um, and I've, we've done it both ways. If I'm, I, I guess the, 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 the writing directly to a storage server is ideal, particularly if you have any large scale to it, but it's, it's significantly more complicated to set up and it's significantly more complicated to troubleshoot when something fails. Gotcha. Okay. I'm definitely going to give cockpit a, a, a look. Um, if you've got time, can I ask one more question? Sure. So, yeah, so um, I guess I know you guys talk about the ubiquities a lot on the on the program, and um, and I guess in general, for, uh, when you're deploying Wi-Fi, is there is there a particular method you do for AP placement? Do you use any software uh, to assist you with that, um, or do you have any guidance in that sense? Yeah, absolutely. So there's the right way to do it, and then there's the easy way to do it. So I'll go through the right way to do it. The right way to do it is is um, is to get a an actual radio scanner that can that you can see um, you can see a radio spectrum on and look for the signal drop on access points. Now, realistically, we used to have a device that did stuff like that, and then of course, every time a new standard comes out where they go to five gigahertz and all the things, uh, then you got to buy a new one of these five, six thousand dollar devices. So I've lately I've gone to just using my phone in an app. Now, is it as accurate as the five thousand uh, dollar device that we we're getting from Fluke? Probably not. Um, but does it get the job done? Yes. Uh, and it's still better than the easy way, which I'll get to in a second. So the right way to do it is to open up an app like uh, Wi-Fi Analyzer, which will give you the the, the signal rating. Really what you're looking for, uh, Tony, if I connect one thing to another, if I touch one thing to another, um, and I send current through it, I'm going. There's going to be loss because there's loss in everything. And so, when that's very much true and absolutely true, anytime we're talking about radio waves, no matter how strong of a signal I'm sending, no matter how close I am to the receiver, there's always some loss. I'm not. I'm not receiving the same, the exact same amount of powers that, that was that was being uh, output by the by the original device. And so, we measure that loss in decibels. And so. The further away uh, one device gets from the next, the weaker the signal gets. And that's a logarithmic scale. It's not linear. Uh, and so it, it, you, there's not a one-to-one like foot-to-decibel uh, loss ratio. Uh, more on that in a second. So uh, what you're looking for is 20 dB of signal separation. So what I mean by that is you have a uh, an access point. It's up in a ceiling. And the user starts to walk away from it. And so they maybe start at... Let's say 40, let's say negative 40 decibels. Cause again, we're measuring in the negative scale because we're nothing, it was started off imperfect. And so, uh, and so we're measuring the, that loss, right? And as the, as the, as you get further away, it drops down into the, um, it starts in the 30s and drops down to the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Once you get past that 20 dB, once you get, once you, once it's dropped 20 dB of, of, of separation, that's when we look at, adding a second access point because now you now you're starting to drop off the threshold of what the user can actually use uh, the access point for um and if you do that and measure them properly and say okay where where does 20 db drop off okay here's another access point another uh, okay another access point another access point and then you set them all to low power so the device isn't talking out further than it can hear from the user's device which oftentimes is a smaller radio or is in a is in a is in an un 
perfect uh, physical setup, and so they're not able to talk to the access point. Uh, once you have all of that set up, off you'll you'll likely never have Wi-Fi issues. You're not going to have people that drop off. You're not going to have, oh, I can't quite get the signal. You're not going to have, well, I have a full bar signal, but nothing actually works on the network. All those kinds of weird things go away. Now there is a there is a there is a a shorthand to doing that. On average, if you walk into the average uh, business or open area or whatever, we could, in theory, go and take a, a, a RF analyzer and go and look every time and make sure that it's still 20 dB of separation. But roughly what you're looking for is an access point every 50 feet. Uh, and that's the UAPAC pros. And we found that in, in wide open spaces, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's an apartment complex or if it's a, a conference venue or whatever, if we put an access point about every 50 feet, we hit that 20 dB of separation. Um, Almost every time. And the only time that that is not true is when you start getting into concrete walls and, and stuff like that. Things that are fire barriers, those kinds of things are going to knock radio signals down. And so then then you're back to measuring. Um, but the technical answer to your question is you want 20 dB of separation between access points. And the shorthand is if you don't have the device or don't care to take the time to measure that, then put them 50 feet apart. So would would you then um, like you're you're gonna go to site let's say for example with uh, an access point and like plug it in and just kind of move it from location to location or or you know just to be able to measure how far out the UAP AC pros is you know for that environment is, mm-hmm. is getting you you know your twenty B. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the RSSI inside of the access point will tell you that. So if you, when you log them into the controller, we get them roughly where we think they're going to go. And we, there's always a service loop, right? Because because the, you should be putting a service loop in when you're dropping network drops. Uh, and so we have a rough idea where they're going to go. And there's probably a maybe a I don't know five six foot service loop. Um, and and then we hang them, and then we, we log in and 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 look, and then that's when we go back and adjusting. And and some of that adjustment, what you'll find is you would think, oh, those, you know, we'd space them apart. But then when you actually go and look at it, you say, oh, right, because there's a whole bunch of users around this corner, and then there's this concrete thing that goes over here. So really, we want one access point on this side, and one access point over here, and one access point over there. So there's, there's always exceptions to the rule. But yeah, that's the that's the the, the and and again, it, it there it probably I wouldn't bother with that if I was doing you know, like two access points in my house, right? I'll just put them, you know, I'll, I would just move them around then. Um, but when you're doing, when you're doing a hotel, when you're doing a five story hotel and 50 access points per floor or whatever, uh, it would be, that would be time consuming to do one at a time. So we hang them all roughly where we think, and then we go and make adjustments as needed. And do you, do you typically lower them if it's in a warehouse, let's say, for example, would you, you know, like hang them from the ceiling and you know, maybe down to, you know, Five ten feet. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that you can get to them easier. Well, the other thing is too is when you're aver- when you're um, when you're working on them or when you need to, when you're servicing them, there's a locate function where it'll flash the lights and stuff. And so anytime we're setting them up for the first time, uh, oftentimes we'll always have them hanging out of the ceiling so that you can you can go up to them and, and reset them if you need to or reset power or, or flash the light if you want to identify one. I was thinking more like uh, like permanently, like I'm not sure like if it's, let's say, a, you know, 30-foot warehouse or 25-foot warehouse, um, would the signal maybe not be as good higher up? Would it, would it need to be lower? Or uh, So radio signals are line of sight. So for the most part, you're, uh, you're looking for obstructions between the access point and the user. And so if you have a 60-foot warehouse, but there's nothing in between, 
the top, uh, the top, the, you know, where the joists are of the, the 60 foot warehouse and the user's desk, I wouldn't think twice about mounting an access point there. But if you have a 60 foot ceiling and then, uh, there's, I don't know. I guess I've never seen anything mounted below us. We've always put them on the ceiling. So I, I, I guess the answer to that question is it, it always works. But if there was some sort of obstruction in between where the top of the ceiling was and, 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 and the user, that's when I would start to say, well, we should drop that access point down or we should move it over or whatever. Um, what you're looking for is, is, is no obstacles in the way between, uh, between the user, but something that would stop radio waves. That's what you're looking. Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your, your time. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. one 450 noah It's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Taunt calls from Toronto. Hey, Taunt, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi there, Noah. Um, thanks for taking my call. I had a question. If you were, I know you guys, uh, your company doesn't do, uh, well, at least I don't think you guys do VoIP systems uh, yourselves. I know you guys work with Vox Telesis, like mm-hmm. you said on the show. So if you had to make sure that your network was capable of handling VoIP, what kind of steps and procedures are, you know, would you take, uh, I mean, whether it be on the local network or even, uh, let's say, going out to a hosted provider uh, before you would implement a, that service? Sure, sure. That's a great question. Um, so a couple of things. A lot of this is actually handled by by routers um, now automatically because it, can, it it understands. There there was a time where we where it was it was necessary to separate all of the voice traffic out, and so typically you would have something like a voice VLAN, um, and then you would set that voice VLAN in the phone, and then when the phone log on would log into that that VLAN, and then you would tag that VLAN to say, hey. This VLAN always gets priority. These days, we don't have to do that anymore because we can use something called quality of service or QoS. And QoS is actually able to um, identify and prioritize the traffic um, that is VoIP. And and so that does a couple of things. Uh, it's going to look at latency, um, which is the time it takes a packet to for, to uh, uh, to arrive at the destination IP address. It's going to look at jitter, which is variation in packets delays. It's going to look at packet loss, which is of course if the, the packet just can't get there after it's tried a number of times. Um, and and so all of those factors are are going to play a, a role in how VoIP traffic uh, gets gets through the 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 network. And so. Um, if you have trust mode or, or strict priority, um, most switches are going to offer that and the and the ability to just enable VoIP uh, QoS. And so if, if if you're using something like uh, PFSense, for example, all of this is, is is happening for you behind the back, even if you don't do anything. Um, if if you if you did if you if you got to a point where you said we're having some trouble or we want to look further into it. Um, um, uh, uh, those kinds of things, then you can start doing things like VLAN tagging or prioritizing SIP traffic. Um, I don't think SIP ALG is still recommended. I think that's been, if not deprecated, I think it's it's frowned upon nowadays. But um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the direction I would go. As far as how, how to actually write a, a QRS rule, uh, essentially what you do is say, you know, traffic that's coming from from let's say let's say the voice VLAN is twenty. Traffic that is on on voice VLAN of twenty has no bandwidth limits. Has has first priority and and that traffic gets processed first. Then everything else happens, and so that will for sure handle it. But like I say, these days you almost don't need to do that. Um, it, it your router will just be able to look at the packet and say, "Oh, that is that's 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 VoIP traffic that goes to the front of the line." Okay, awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. Eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email 
live at AskNoahShow.com. Our second email uh, comes in and says, first, thank you for the amazing show. I listen to all the podcasts you are on. You're a wealth of knowledge, and that should not be wasted. So I've been working for a landscape company for my parents since I was 13. I'm now 28, and I've been going to school for a long time. Between work, life, and learning, I've just been running since COVID. My school has been online, and I've not been doing well. So I feel like it may be time to start my own IT business instead of what I've been doing, which is basically dragging my feet. I have knowledge of networks and Linux and some Windows Server stuff. I would like to start small, maybe by setting up some networks or managing backup servers, then transition into bigger server applications and such. I just have no idea where to start. And I know you have your business, so I thought, who better to ask than ask Noah? So, uh, and P.S., I have my own home lab, actually, too. One at my parents, one at my apartment. Yes, I have three backups. All of my data is there. Yes, I can't lose anything both at my apartment and at my parents. Just a little tidbit there in case I listened to the last show. Uh, thanks for any help you can give. Joshua, A.K. Josh on Tech. So um, here's what I would tell you, Josh. I would tell you when you're looking at network stuff, start with endpoints and work your way to the center of the network. Start by looking for clients or working with clients to address things like a printer that doesn't work, a computer that they need added to an existing network, an access point in an area that doesn't have proper Wi-Fi coverage. Those are all things that can very easily be added into an existing network and you can grow into that environment. And I tell you that as a guy who's been running an IT company since 2009, we still walk into organizations and it's a growing process over a year or so to really learn the insides and outsides of their network and their systems and how they want things to run and what they expect out of it as a business and what their budget is and all of those things come into play. If you don't have the experience to make those kinds of decisions or to be able to evaluate those kind of decisions, then what I would tell you to do is stay towards the endpoints. And then as you become comfortable, hey, I replaced that. I replaced this access point. I replaced that computer. I replaced that printer. I fixed this thing. Now we're to the switch that connects all of those things that I've been worked on. Well, that's no big deal because I know what the VLANs are supposed to be because I dealt with that or learned that when I was configuring the access points and whatnot. Do the switch. Then work your way into you know the core switch and then the router or whatever it is, right? But manage a few PCs, help with some printers, access points, uh, maybe get into doing cameras. I had a good friend of mine that um, he is starting a consulting business and he's like, you know, where do I start? And we talked about it for a little bit and he said, you know, I might start with cameras because cameras are really great endpoint devices. Lots of businesses, even if they have cameras, they're old, outdated analog cameras. IP is easier to install, cheaper to install, better quality, better user experience. So it's a very easy sell. And if you're a guy that's willing to do it without a cloud subscription and you're going to put that value into the customer's pocket, then you, that makes you very valuable to them. So don't be afraid to sell your brand and saying, here's why I'm doing this and here's why that's a better buy for you than running down to Office Max and grabbing a couple of Nest Cams or whatever, right? And all of these things, all of these things, cameras, access points, endpoints, printers, all those things can be learned without doing any serious modification to the existing network or without changing and a complete understanding of all of the consequences to a business. And that that's going to save you from getting into a lot of trouble. Um, and so, and then again, as you build consequence or as you build confidence, don't hesitate to work your way into the network and eventually be, uh, the end all be all solutions guy. Our third email comes in from Nick. Nick writes in and says, Hey, no, first I love the show. I've been switching between Arch and Debian based distros for years and have generally been very happy with them. But recently I decided to give Fedora 33 a go. And I have to say, I really like it so far. I know you've been using Fedora and Red Hat for years, so my question is, what is the go-to resource to learn about Fedora administration? 
Does Fedora have an Arch Wiki, like a place where you can go and learn everything about the operating system? And one more thing, if I may say, what is the best way, Fedora-specific or not, in your opinion, to provision a new install? I mean, things like installing a specific set of packages, copying config files, setting environment variables, etc. Keep up the great work, Nick. So uh, we'll start with this. Obviously, the documentation is <laughs> – Conan Kudo has posted this in the chat room just as I said this too uh, – docs.fedoraproject.org. Uh, and, and obviously, that's if you want to read everything and understand everything. That's where you would start. But more specifically, where I go for information when I'm trying to learn about – because you don't necessarily need to know everything that was ever written in Fedora, right? Oftentimes, it's about what is new, what has changed what is interesting and exciting, uh, what breaks, and how do I work around that. For all of those things, I use the Fedora Forms, I use the Fedora IRC, and uh, lately I've been getting into Fedora Matrix. Um, and so that's going to allow you to connect with the community, connect with other Fedora users and people uh, like yourself that are, are using the system, and then you can share that information. Um, for a while, I participated in something called the Fedora, Fedora Ambassadors Program, where I would mail out physical media to people that couldn't install Fedora for one reason or another. It would just show up in the mail for them. Um, probably should get back to doing stuff like that. But, uh, but, but all of those community resources exist. Like People don't talk about the Fedora Ambassador Program. People don't talk about the Fedora community support that's, that's on the forums, unless you're, you know, unless you're, again, unless you're in that community. Um, and so it's not widely publicized, but um, it is, it's a great resource if you're trying to learn about Fedora. And then the other side of that is there is a really natural segue into doing system server system administration on Red Hat um, once you're comfortable in working in the Fedora world. A lot of the guys that are in that environment either work at Red Hat or work with Red Hat or uh, or prefer CentOS in some or excuse me Red Hat in some way, shape, or form. And 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 so they're oftentimes a really good resource uh, for for handling uh, servers as well. Um, and then as far as how to set things up. So almost all of the customizations that we do for Linux deploys are almost always done with scripts. Um, essentially, Linux's real power comes from the fact that you can do anything from the CLI. You can do everything from the CLI, really. And so uh, you can leverage that in the form of scripts to automate uh, getting things installed and, 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 and stuff like that. Of course, if you want to get really fancy about it, you could do things like Ansible. Um, and, and that's where we really, we change from uh, giving a machine a set of instructions, install these packages to giving it an ultimate destination. I want you to be an Nginx web server, do all the things you have to do. And um, and that can be really powerful as well, but it requires uh, a certain level of understanding um, of Ansible. So maybe get there down the road. Fourth email comes in from, uh, we don't know. But writes in and says, hi, Noah, although I'm an Arch Linux user, I've tested Fedora 34 beta that ships with Pipewire and Linux 5.11 by default and to test my Sony WH-1000XM3s as a reference point under a VM. In Arch, I have to create a soft phone mode with Ophono, but it still works in Arch Linux as in Fedora 34. Blog post needs to be written. I was impressed with the out-of-the-box experience in Fedora 34. Nevertheless, I have a question for you. Why HSP, HFP Bluetooth profiles in Linux are limited to monophonic uh, and why the noise cancellation functionality is dropped with HSP and HFP. I'm not an audiophile, but I would expect that this should work as Bluetooth, just like the radio network and the noise cancellation on the headphones. Thanks in advance. I don't have a good answer to that. Um, but what I've learned is when I read the email, even if I don't have an answer for it, there's oftentimes other people that do and that they'll write it. So we'll throw it out there and see what comes back. Our fifth email comes in from 
Uh, Richard. Richard writes in and says, regarding episode 227, see this is what I was talking about, debugging desktop crashes for Lucas. I have an AMD Ryzen 7 3700X 8-core on an Asus Prime X570 Pro motherboard using Manjaro with KDE Plasma. I also had a period of time with random desktop lockups that went on for several months. None of them were crashes. KDE did not crash back to a prompt or anything like that, and I could not find a reason or pattern that made any sense. What I observed. One, it only happened when the computer was not being used, never happened under load or when I was interacting with it. Number two, not saying it's a cause, but 80% of the time the KDE lock screen was showing and unresponsive. The other 20% of the time had reached where the monitor was powered off and I was unable to get the screen to even respond. Three, the caps locks and num locks toggles it did not change the keyboard light. Fourth, the hard drive LEDs showed random disk activity, and fifth, Ethernet was still active and responded to ping. I considered enabling SSHD to see if that would respond during a lockup, but never got around to it. I thought it was a hardware issue, but I could not find anything wrong. I have an old NVIDIA WinForce GTX 970 video card using an open source drivers. I personally think it was a kernel issue, but I have no proof of that. My understanding is that with recent kernels and a lot of AMD enhancements since, li- since Linux and the kernel devs have moved to AMD Threadripper CPUs. If I recall, I was using kernel 5.4 when it started, and by 5.9, it had reduced significantly. I'm currently on kernel 5.10, and it's been stable for weeks at a time. I'd forgotten about the lockups until I heard it on the show. Best regards, Richard. So that might be a thought to you, Lucas. If you haven't tried updating, see if you can jump on one of the latest kernel builds and see if that doesn't fix your issue. Mike writes in and says, one solution for the caller about a garage door control status is Open Garage. It's available at opengarage.io. Open Garage is a fully open source product, and instead of using traditional door sensors, it uses a built-in ultrasonic distance sensor for the door status, which has the added benefit of being able to report if a car is in the garage or not. It integrates very well with Home Assistant as well. For the other caller asking about a reliable temperature sensor for Home Assistant on Z-Wave, I've used the Aon, the Aon Labs ZW100 Multi-Sensor 6 Sensor. It's available at aotech.com slash z-wave-sensor. Very successfully in a similar application with the added benefit of motion sensing. One hint, most Z-Wave sensors will report status much more frequently if they are locally powered instead of battery. Thanks for all the work you do for the Linux community, Mike. Our pick of the week this week is demo.uptime.js.org. So I always appreciate it anytime an ISP or a service provider has uh, the ability for me to go to an uptime monitor and find out if their services are in fact working as expected or if they're unexpectedly down. It tells me if the problem relies, lies with me or them. And these days it's become really common for those kinds of that kind of information to be publicized on Twitter. And so oftentimes if I think something's down, I'll jump on Twitter and just see if uh, if something jumps up. Um, uh, but if you want it to be automatic, write to your customers, embed it on your website. Oftentimes this requires spinning up a server of sorts and you have to know how to set that up and then monitor all the things and then publish all that information to a website. It gets complicated. You don't want to manage that infrastructure. All you want to do is tell your customers if your website is up or service is up. Well, demo.uptime.js.org demonstrates how you can do this with nothing more than a GitHub page. 
and uh, allows you to monitor. They have a, a, a demo that shows Google and Wikipedia and Hacker News and a broken site, and it shows you what the average ping response is, the overall uptime, uh, and it's just embedded and shows, and you can link to that or embed it into your site. So again, the tool is demo.uptime.js.org. Uptime is the open source uptime monitor and status page powered entirely by GitHub. Absolutely fantastic tool. This is a sample page that uses real-time data from our GitHub repository. No servers required, just GitHub Actions, Issues Pages. Get your own for free. Again, the tool, demo.uptime.js.org. In the news this week, Fedora 34 has been released. They're excited to promote their new logo, which looks absolutely fantastic. They've updated key programming language and system library packages to include Ruby 3.0, Golang 1.16. In Fedora KDE Plasma, they've switched from X11 to Wayland as the default. Now, I invite you to go back and check out ANS228. That's ans.st slash 228 or com. You can listen to my interview with Matthew Miller, the Fedora project lead. We go into all of the changes and exciting things that have come to Fedora, things like Pipewire. Um, uh, and, and so it's a fantastic discussion. We had it last week. And so I would invite you to go check that out. Uh, I, as I can, t- I, again, I, I usually wait a little bit before I upgrade my production machines to Fedora, but I'm absolutely, uh, going for Fedora 34. As mentioned in a few different previous episodes, GNOME 40 is absolutely fantastic. I've been playing with it for weeks. I can't wait to get my hands on it, on some of my production machines and kind of play with it. And if all goes well, the, the studio mach- machines may be getting wiped and replaced with, um, with Fedora. Might go that route. Um, another software release is out, though, and that's Ubuntu 2104. Now, we haven't talked about Ubuntu much on this show lately, uh, and, uh, but here, 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 sweet Hippo is the Ubuntu release that has come out. It's the 34th release since 2006. This being a point release, again, the even number 04s are the ones that are the LTSs, and the odd numbers uh, or the even number 10s uh, are released in October. Those are the point releases. So they get support of nine months of security updates, critical fixes, and select software updates. So as mentioned, 2104 is not going to ship with GNOME 40, but they are shipping the latest version of GNOME 338. Now, GNOME is not just a desktop environment. It's also a full stack consisting of desktop apps and core libraries. And the Ubuntu developers have managed to make a lot of the upcoming GNOME 40 apps work under the 3.38 desktop environment. And this is going to be supported until at least the end of 2021. So some of the apps that have been updated to GNOME 40 and GNOME Calculator, Disk Use Analyzer, uh, GNOME Disks, Events Document Viewer, GNOME Font Viewer, Eye of GNOME Image Viewer, GNOME System Monitor Seahorse, uh, GNOME Sudoku, GNOME Characters, Yelp, and GVFS. Uh, again, like I mentioned, it, it features the Linux 5.11 kernel, and Wayland is on by default. I was excited to see this. You know, Canonical, when they first released, I believe it was not like nineteen, like 1910 or something, they, they tried to turn on Wayland on the point release to see what would happen. And then... They came back and said, okay, this is not ready for prime time, and then pulled it before the LTS came out. So to me, this is canonical making that same poke again. Is Wayland ready today? Are there any problems? And there are some really fantastic things that come along to switching to Wayland. So you're going to get smoother graphics and better fractional scaling on on Electron apps. 
and things like Firefox. And so there are some major, including things like the ability to do native screen recording and screen sharing. All of these things are thought about uh, and put into place by things like Pipewire and when Pipewire has the ability to talk to Wayland. So there are some advantages uh, to, to, to going this route. And I'm, I'm really happy to see that that's on by default. And we'll see what kind of, if any problems it causes, because a lot of distros have kind of standardized on that now. And then, as a reminder, we talked about this uh, in a previous episode, but the pro- the home directory is going to be private for the first time. Previously, it was set to be world readable by default. And, uh, or if, I mean, if we're getting nitty gritty, then the directory permissions have changed from 755 to 750. Um, but but that's going to make the, the the directory not world readable and only readable by the user, which is the way it should be. And so I'm glad to see that that little change has been made. Although, again, I I stand by my my uh, my assertion that if I have physical access to the device, all the permissions in the world aren't going to help. Uh, you need encryption. Um, they include the ability to select a power mode in settings and then power. Uh, they've refreshed the dark theme. Man, does this look good? Gnome, uh, Ubuntu twenty one oh four. Uh, looks fantastic. And, and so their new default dark theme looks absolutely gorgeous. They've also added a recovery key for this, for supporting encrypted installs. And so this is you type your, uh, you want to encrypt your hard drive because you want to protect your data from an unauthorized attacker. And so you do that. But in the process of doing that, because it's a long recovery or because it's a long password, you maybe forget it. Having a recovery key allows you to decrypt the disk even if you've forgotten your password. And so it's kind of a, a backup way in. So I was excited to see that. Additionally, there is a whole host of improvements for the enterprise. So they have support for smart card authentication, um, which uh, allows you to use like PKCS11 tokens um, to authenticate into and on the machine. They also have improved uh, support for native Active Directory inter- integration, um, and certified Microsoft SQL Server on Ubuntu are some of the top priorities for their enterprise customers. And so for developers and innovator, uh, Ubuntu 2104 uh, is focusing on delivering that Wayland and Flutter experience to make everything smoother uh, and more performant. Uh, 2104 is going to ship with GNU Library 2.33, GCC 10.3, uh, Perl 3.9.4, LLVM 12, Golang 1.16, Rustic 1.5, Ruby 2.7.2, OpenGDK 11, OpenGDK 16, Pulse Audio 14, Blues 5.56, and Network Manager 1.13. And then it's not just all fun for the desktops. If you are running Ubuntu Server, you're going to get Rails 6, KMU 5.2, Libvirt 7.0, DPDK 20.11.1, Open vSwitch 2.15, um, so and Docker uh, Docker.io 20.10.2, OpenStack Wallaby, so lots of uh, lots of fun things for the server side as well. It wasn't all roses though. There were some problems that came out with this release of 2104. The biggest one is in regards to upgrades, and this comes from Brian Murray, and he ex- explains on the Ubuntu developer mailing list quote. I wanted to let you know that users of Ubuntu 2010 are not being prompted to upgrade to Ubuntu 21.04. This is due to a bug with the current version of Shim in Ubuntu 21.04 in which users can cause a system with early versions of EFI to fail to boot after the upgrade. The latest update, uh, here suite, made the MacBook Air from 2012 unbootable. 
writes an affected user, adding that they were able to recover their system using an Ubuntu 2004 LTS live CD and overwriting the files in EFI slash Ubuntu and EFI slash boot with the files shipped in the release's shim package. Those running super modern hardware are unlikely to be affected. And so if you are running an older version with older EFI, then you may want to wait to do your upgrade. But again, you'll notice something. And this was kind of my takeaway as I, as I was kind of playing around with these distros as they came out this week. You'll notice that a lot of, even though they're entirely separate companies, entirely separate corners of the world, and in a lot of ways have two entirely different goals and ecosystems and company cultures and all the things, right? At the end of the day, a lot of the technological choices that they're making are still the same. Still really excited to ship Pipewire. Still really excited to ship Wayland. And I think part of that is when we get there with free and open source, sometimes it takes us a little longer. I'm sure there's somebody out there that's asked the question, you're talking about screen sharing and screen recording as a native function of Wayland. Why wasn't that something thought about before? Well, because when X was thought about however many 20 years ago, we never really thought it was going to be more than like a little cursor clicking on stuff. And look at what computers are doing today. And the code has survived that long. Now it's a hacked together mess and it's time to get rid of it. But it served us pretty well so far. And so the next generation of display service, the next generation of things like Pipewire, and now that we have an understanding of what where we've been, what we aim to do with these tools, and where we want to go, I'm 100% confident, 100% confident that open source will get there better, even if it takes us longer. And so as I watch some, as I watch some of the demonstrations of screen sharing and screen recording and, 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 and integrating that into the operating system as, as just a native function and thinking about what the potential is for that. Um, it's, it's, it's really incredible. And so I'm excited to see what we can do uh, with fractional scaling and, and stuff like that when we have a display server that was specifically designed to do that. And we're not just, we're not just hacking around it. Uh, 21.10. Empirish Idri, uh, is, it's, so it's a Madagascan, uh, Lemur, and that is the next release of Ubuntu 2110, which will be released in October of this year. So check back then. Until then, check out 2104 live at com with your comments. I'd love to hear what you think of it. So Moxie Marlin Spike, uh, is the guy that is responsible for Signal. And Open Whisper Systems. Um, to quote Edward Snowden, use everything by Open Whisper Systems. They're great. Um, <laughs> the, uh, to, to set this up a little bit, there is a company called Cellbrite. And Cellbrite is a popular forensics uh, company that is, that is an Israeli forensics company that creates a tool that allows you to extract information off of devices. Uh, this is from the EFF, quote, in March 2016, Cellbrite, a popular forensic tool company, supported logical extractions for 8,393 different devices and physical extractions, which involves copying all the data off of a phone bit by bit for 4,254 devices. Cellbrite can then bypass lock screens on about 1,500 different devices. How do they by bypass encryption, you ask? Often, they just guess the password. In 2018, Professor Matthew Green estimated it would take no more than 22 hours for forensic tools to break into some older iPhones with a six-digit passcode simply by continually guessing passwords, i.e. the brute force attempt. A four-digit passcode would fail in about 13 minutes. Uh, 
That brute force guessing was enabled by a hardware flaw that had been fixed since 2018 and that the rate of password guessing would be much more limited now. But even as smartphone companies like Apple improve their security, device hacking remains very much a cat and mouse game. As recently as September in 2020, Celebrate Marketing Materials boasted tools that can break into iPhone devices with the latest iPhone 11 and 11 Pro Max running the latest iOS versions as late as 13.4.1. Even when weak passwords cannot be broken, vendors like Celebrate often offer advanced services that can unlock even the newest iOS and Samsung devices. Upturn research suggests that the base price of these services is about $1,950, but it can be cheaper in bulk. Forensic searches of cell phones, get this, are increasingly common. The Las Vegas Police Department, for instance, examined 260 more cell phones, 260% more cell phones in 2018 and 2019 compared with 2015 and 2016. So I set all of that up for a couple of reasons because it's going gonna, it's gonna to give you some background for this next story. But also, the next time you hear somebody say, we need more, we need to get rid of encryption because it prevents us from doing investigating crimes and all the bad guys are getting... No, no, you want a cheaper way of investigating crimes and getting around encryption because you can already do it. So, uh, so what Marlon... So Moxie Marlin Spike is a guy that, that uh, started Signal. And so he's a security researcher and has created, kind of dedicated his life to preserving people's privacy. So obviously, companies like Cellbrite that make a tool that allow the police to just copy your phone, uh, he doesn't think too much of that. And so he started looking at Cellbrite, the software, and what their security was. And guess what he found? By including a specially formatted but otherwise innocuous file in the app on a device that is then scanned by Cellbrite, it is indeed possible to execute code that modifies not just the Cellbrite report being created in that scan, but also all previous and future generated Cellbrite reports from all previously scanned devices and all future scanned devices in an arbitrary way instead of removing text, email, photos, contacts, files, or any other data with no detectable timestamp changes or checksum failures. This could be e- this could be done even at random and would seriously call the data integrity of any Cellbrite report into question. Cellbrite pr- provides two software packages. The first is the UFED, and this breaks through the lock and encryption protections to collect deleted or hidden data. A separate physical analyzer uncovers digital evidence, also known as trace events. To do their job, both pieces of software must parse all kinds of untrusted data stored on the device and being analyzed. And typically that software does this in a promiscuous and undergoes all sorts of security hardening to detect and fix memory corruption or parsing vulnerabilities that may allow attackers to execute malicious code. Looking at both UFED and the physical analyzer, though we were eight, we were surprised to find that very little, if any, care seems to have been given to Cellbrite's own software security. Marlin Spike wrote, industry standard exploit mitigation defenses are missing and many opportunities for exploitation are present. Marlin Spike included a video that shows UFED as it parses a file to be formatted to execute Arbory code on the Windows device. The payload uses the message box Windows API to display a benign message, but Marlin Spike said that, of course, it's possible to execute any code and any real exploit payload would likely seek to undetectably alter previous reports, compromise the integrity of future reports, perhaps at random, or exfiltrate data from the Cellbrite machine. So the people that are hacking your phone just got hacked by a guy trying to secure your phone from people hacking it. I thought that was kind of a cool story, so I wanted to bring that to your attention. I I, I will tell you this, just kind of in closing there. Uh, be 
consider, you know, you, we, we, we oftentimes talk about security from the standpoint of, well, it's Android or it's Apple and it's all syncing up to the cloud or it's not safe anyway. And so to a certain degree, don't put stuff on a device connected to the Internet, constantly connected to the Internet if, if it's mission critical stuff that absolutely could not or ever get leaked. But on top of that, if you're just a normal person going about his or her day to day life and you say to yourself, self, I just don't want the inconvenience of I want to be able to use my Android or iOS device, fine. But use the built-in encryption and use a password that's going to be difficult to guess. Or it's not really worth doing. I mean, it'll keep your friends out of it, but it's not going to keep a dedicated attacker from being able to get into it. The music in my ear means we're out of time. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us for the discussion either in the phone, in our interactive Jitsi room, or participate in our chat room at geeklab.ninja. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. You can catch all of the shows at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Catch me on Twitter, at Colonel Linux, at Ask Noah Show for the latest. See you next week.